Hello and welcome to another edition of the From the Clubhouse podcast. It is very sunny and very hot and has been for a number of days, Steve. How are you doing? You've obviously been doing better than me because I've been getting rained on for the last three days. Yes, what? true. It was very rainy in York on ch- Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, It was very, very rainy indeed. I didn't step outside. Right. Is that what we've... I'm still... Uh... That's all we've come to talking about the weather. That's just what I was going to say. No, I think uh, I'm just feeling sort of all jo- joie de vivre. I've kind of like heat wave, innit? I'm still sort of riding the heat wave. I've given up drinking. I think I may be seeing the world through slightly uh, clearer lenses. You've given up drinking and you've given up smoking. Yeah. I have given. We don't talk about that. My mum might be listening to this. I have given up all sweet treats in a bid to stave off the inevitable passage of time and the middle-aged paunch. We're just two people in denial, literally. Sorry, so when you say you've given up sweet treats, can you like, what's that mean? Uh, any sort of yeah, chocolate? Any I've sugar. given up anything that would have chocolate encrusted around it at all. Um, I've given up any sort of snack. So I'm trying to have three square meals and that's it. Um, I haven't. I haven't gone as far as giving up beer. I mean, Jesus, I've got to have a life. Um, but I've given up everything else. I went to football on Monday, and um, I, I had the misfortune of standing in the mirror before I went to football. And the shirt that used to be quite loose seemed to be getting a bit tight at the midriff. This filled me with horror. You are uh, you are a thin man, though, aren't you? You are sort of svelte by nature. Yeah, which is why a sort of beer gut. Um, looks all the worse, to be honest. Yeah, sort of pregnant man kind of silhouette. I'm in danger of it. I've, I, I, I have decided... <laughs> I think you're about a million miles. I now. have decided to take action. Yeah. I could bore you with the um, the nuances and benefits of low heart rate running. High protein diets? Not a flicker. I can't, can't not get much of a reaction. I'm sort of vegetarian slash vegan, aren't I? So I can't just turn to meat as an easy, as easy protein source. And no, but you can eat you, you can eat uh, Greek yogurt, like I do, like it's going out of fashion. That is true. But if you look at like most most of the vegan stuff or veggie stuff I've looked at, which would be easy source of proteins, like ultra high processed, isn't it? Which apparently is not a good mm. thing anymore now. Also bad. Yeah, it's difficult, Steve. It's an absolute tightrope. Uh, anyway, I've been to London. I've been to that London. Well, sort of London. Is it London or is it more like Surrey? It's a lot like Surrey. In fact, it is Surrey. It's near. It's near that London. It's amazing, isn't it? I don't, you've spent. Have you spent much time in that Surrey? I've been to that golf course, uh, which of clearly we're talking about Wentworth. I've been to Wentworth a number of times. I've played it a couple of times. The 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 right, West. What else? Have it, what, what other Surrey experience have you got? Have you done the W's? No. No, I have done. Um, I have done the nearby one nearby Berkshire course. There's like three miles, isn't there, that separates um, that separates Swinley Forest and Wentworth. But one's in Surrey and one's in Berkshire. I think that right. Yeah, Swinley's in Berkshire. Yeah. Even though you could basically run there in ten minutes. So you you played Swinley. That was on a GCMA day. I've played Swinley twice. You've no, you haven't played any W's. Woking, Whirlpoolstone, West Hill. The opportunity has not arisen. Have you played the Berkshire? No, haven't played St George's Hill either. I'm basically a I'm basically a Berkshire and Surrey virgin. Yeah, you are a bit, aren't you? It's almost like you get down there in the quest for some top one hundred content. Um, it's amazing place. Right, I used to live in London. Lived in Balham, um, gateway to the south, which is uh, Greater London, should we say, rather than Surrey. Uh, I lived there till I was about 35 and you kind of have an option I think then that you people either sort of stay and become sort of very metropolitan and a bit sort of left-wing champagne socialist type people or they sort of leave and move to the home counties um, and that's kind of like what you do and then you commute into London and then you have your kids in the home counties or you sort of scarper back from whence you came which is what I did um, so when I sort of go back to London or and around shall we say um, it's sort of a funny feeling because you sort of think, oh, this is what you could have been doing. Surrey is an amazing place, right? People in Surrey are very pleased with themselves, I always think. It's sort of like, it's kind of got that sort of hue to it, hasn't well, it? Well, they've got every right to be. They've probably got money out of growing out of their ears. They've got great gold courses everywhere. 
what's what's not to, you know even the even the shabbiest home is worth about two million pounds i mean it's all great isn't it but you've somewhat sort of stolen my thunder there because then you then go to Surrey and you sort of understand why they're all so happy it's just ridiculous <laughs> other than the fact that you have to sit in a traffic jam almost constantly like it's amazing there's like miles of open space there's unbelievable good golf courses and then you can get training to london dead easy like, and up here we're like stuck with like about one train an hour aren't we going to where it chooses to go to i was brought up in billingham we didn't know about trains Exactly. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's I mean, incredible. like you talked about Ballum. I went to Ballum once because I'd um, I had a mate who lived in Tooting Beck, which is obviously just down the road, isn't it? Um, and I and I'm Ballum to me was like just seemed to me to be the home of celebrities. Everywhere I looked, there was another Big Brother contestant. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so then I put, so I've been at the uh, PGA at Wentworth. So I've been at the PGA at Wentworth. I've been in. Um, done some meetings with industry colleagues um, on the Wednesday of, uh, of the PGA. And I think the PGA at Wentworth is like the absolute sort of zenith of that this kind of thing in, in Surrey. It is just such a sceney thing. When was the last time you went? To the PGA? I have yeah. never been. The BMW PGA Championship, I think you'll find it. I've called. never been, officially. I've never been to the tournament. What? I've played the West Coast twice. Um, but I have never actually been to the BMW PGA Championship. You played the West Coast twice. See, I've got an invite to do that at the end of October, which will be my debut. It's like one of the few. It's funny, isn't it? Because I've played like none of the Surrey Berkshire courses, and this is about the West Coast is about the only one you've got left to tick off the list, isn't it? That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, it's soon going to happen. Um, anyway, so it's like it's like. They've done an amazing job with it, I think. So obviously, it's, it used to be in this kind of October date, and it was like the the match play, and it was like an unbelievably um, nostalgic thing, isn't it? Sort of still thinking about Seve and all the rest of it, and kind of damp autumn mornings, and blah 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 blah. And then it moved to its May day, and it over the years it's had problems with greens, and it's had problems attracting a good field. Um, and it's now got a really good field of quite a lot of a lot of Americans come across and play. All of the sort of top Europeans play, um, and it's a really cool event. What I think they've done a great job of is marketing it as a kind of sporting event, um, and it's kind of on the circuit with things like Henley and things like Ascot. It's kind of something that you do, I think, if you kind of live in London these days, which I think is pretty cool. And the crowd yesterday were like pretty diverse, um, which was all sort of good to see. Uh, and the branding's unbelievable. The Tented Village is really cool. And they put on some music afterwards. They had Rudimental. Do you know who he is? I have heard of him. I have not experienced his work. Yeah, I would say that. That's about my level of, yeah. I've heard the word before. It's kind of about as much as my rudimental knowledge. Anyway, he was playing last night. I left before he started. So that's all good. And they have this celebrity pro-am on the Wednesday where all sorts of people come down and play. I don't know what you think about that, Steve. What do I think about uh, pro-ams? Um, yeah. I, I have. I should confess before we start that I have played in a couple. Um, one at the Aramco team series at Centurion, and once before, once in Portugal, um, when Nacho Elvira was the pro in our group. Um, so I should say before I start slagging pro-ams off because I'm going to start giving them grief that um, I have, I am a hypocrite and I have played in a couple, Um, but they're not for me. They're not, they're not for me. They're They're not not for me. I have never, ever felt the need to um, pay good money to watch Tom Holland shank some shots. Although to be fair, to be (laughs) fair, Tom Holland's pretty good at golf, isn't he? Um, I am. I I don't don't know who Tom Holland is. Who's Spider-Man? Oh, right. I have, I am. Which which one? Well, well, There's millions of spiders. Exactly, exactly. Um, I am not. Um, God, if this goes, if people, if people on Twitter hear this, I'm going to be in so much trouble. Um, I have I have no particular care to see Niall Horan demonstrating his golf skills. Um, I can. You can't say I can, that. You can't say I can that. Appre- Niall Horan's the savior of I, golf. Steve. I can appreciate what he's done for golf without driving 300 miles to watch him play at Wentworth. Um, and I always equate proams 
like from when I was uh, from, from years gone by as just being sort of a endless parade of ex nineties footballers. Um, it's the sort of thing where like Teddy Sheringham and Roddy, Robbie Fowler just turn up and you don't see him anymore until you see him in one of these programs. And then you just think, Oh yeah, I used to remember you were famous 20 years ago. But uh, I mean, I played in a program. I played in uh, the Scottish Open program with Chris Wood, and uh, the European Tour have just done like a spoof worst ever program partner video. Have you seen that? Oh yes, I did see it. Yeah, uh, and it's like got lots of cliches in it with a guy pretending to be a sort of South African wannabe tour pro, and he's like asking to play off the back tees and stuff, and kind of clubbing himself off um, his pro's name. I can't remember. Richard Mansell. Um, it was Richard Mansell. Richard Mansell. That's right. And I was watching it thinking. Oh, I think that's kind of how I behaved a bit. I definitely did at one point ask Chris Wood what club he hit. <laughs> anyway, so so this is sort of deeply cynical stuff. Um, and I'm sure if either has got an invite to play in the Wentworth Pro-Am, we'd literally be we'd set off before the phone call was over. Oh, I got um, But that aside, it is quite an odd thing. And what amazes me is that you could almost name half of the slebs, I reckon, without looking at the list. So if you were going to guess three people who were definitely playing without looking in yesterday's uh, Pro-Am, who would you go for? I would go for... I'd go for Gareth Bale. I would go for <laughs> Ronan Keating. Um, oh, I don't think oh, he, he didn't play. I think you've, hang on. Hey, you might have done, hang on. I mean, is Brian McFadden? Is he that was, the same he, person? Or is he that was literally different? the third person I was going to say. <laughs> It was literally the third person I was going to say. So if I can't have Ronan Keating, um, I'm going to say Anton de Beek. Yeah, he played. He played uh, with um, in a sort of uh, Strictly Come Dancing group with um, Eddie Pepperell. I can't believe you say Dan Walker. Surely Dan Walker is absolutely QI alarm stuff for who's played in the Pro-Am. Nagamonchetti? Like... I just think these people only exist at Wentworth, basically. They're the sort of people that if you've shown no interest in daytime TV or if you've actually got a job, you probably wouldn't know who any of them are. Gaz Beadle? He's like... Is he like some... <laughs> stalk, is he that Geordie Shaw guy? Yeah, yeah. He's always playing on a woodley. And then, guess who, guess who else played sort of topical? Theo Walker. <laughs> Sorry, that's far too much for Bryce. So we're, we're, we are going to have to explain this now. So um, our tour writer, Matt Chivers, um, wrote a, an opinion piece earlier in the week where he compared um, Nikolai Hogard's elevation to the Ryder Cup team as asking whether he would turn out to be golf's version of Theo Walcott, who obviously got picked for 2006 um, in Germany, I think it was. Was it Germany? Um uh, yeah, he was, yeah. And, Gelsenkirk and, and Wags. And, and didn't see any action whatsoever. And Although he did turn out to be a pretty good player, Theo Walcott. Yeah, and now it turns out he's a golfer. Anyway, uh, so that was that. Didn't see a single golf shot. Saw Matt Fitzpatrick's dad warming up. As close as I got to a golf shot. Was he in the pram? He was, yeah. <laughs> Playing with Matt Fitzpatrick. I assume it was his dad. I'm about to get loads of social media abuse now saying you're just jealous that you didn't get to play in the Pro-Am. Uh, 100%. I mean, that's just fact. No, yeah. I have to tell you, the prospect of teeing off in front of several thousand people at Wentworth is not something that I would volunteer for. So kudos to that respect because it, be, it must be very nerve-wracking. Anyway, it was a very good trip, uh, although I've got a bit of a confession to make. I, I sort of got caught out by my wife Um I got a PR invite to go and play, stay at a place called Penny Hill Park on Tuesday night. Um, very smart piece of PR by the PR company. Uh, they wrote to us about a, a month or so ago <clears throat> and lots of other people and said, if you're heading to the BMW, would you like to go and stay at Penny Hill Park? Penny Hill Park is the home of the England rugby squad. And has been for many, many years, I think. I think they were based out of there when they won the World Cup. Yeah. I think they were, you're right. Anyway, so as chance would have it, Tuesday the 12th of September is my wife's birthday so I'm thinking this is amazing I'm going to kill about three birds with one stone here I'm going to go to the go to the BMW do my meetings go to stay in this hotel on a PR invite and I can take my wife for her birthday so I explained all this to my wife um apart from I forgot to tell her it was a freebie um for her birthday present I mean she didn't ask right 
So we get there, use the spa and all of that, go down for dinner. Um, there's three people in the restaurant, apart from us, right? And they are the publisher of Golf News, sat on his own. YouTube's Pierre Finch, sat on his own. And someone else in the golf industry, who we know, sat on their own. And literally, like dominoes, one by one, they all waved and said, all right, all right, Tom, all right. My missus goes, how come you know everyone in this restaurant? I was like, she goes, oh, for fuck's sake, it's a freebie, isn't it? I was like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Justine does know you quite well, though. I mean, there must have been like an inkling in the back of her mind that, that any time that you arrange anything, there's a cost implication to it. Anyway, it was it was a bit annoying, but it was good. I highly recommend Penny Hill Park. Good, good spot. And then we stayed at the Grove last night. Also tremendous. In fact, amazing. So, is um is this why you're continuing your boycott of playing golf with me? Well, I've been I've been a little a little bit busy, haven't I? So I've now got a backlog of actual work to do while you're swanning around on a Friday afternoon. I don't think that's true. I because so I should tell listeners right that that me and Tom talk about our golf every week, mostly on this podcast. Me and Tom have not played golf together for five years. That's not it true. is true. It's it's massively pre-pandemic. I invited uh, when I invite when I invited you to the Oldly Guest Day. Yeah, mean? that was like 2016. Right. That was like in my first few months of the company. Tom did see my golf that day, and I think he just decided that I wasn't a good player and that he could never play with me again. I don't. Th- I still don't think that's true. We've definitely played golf on the same day at the same venue since then. Yeah, absolutely, but, the but you, you have engineered it so that you've been in a you've been in a different group. He, he, he Tom does likes to do this thing where like balls get thrown in the air and it's like a completely random process, but it's actually not random at all. It's a conspiracy. Mm. Anyway, should we move on? Um, oh, do we not play together at Put Stars? That is not. Oh wait, can I say I was gonna? I was going to say that is not golf. Um, but that's my segue. That's my. But segue. We can't say that anymore, can we? Did we play together at Put Stars? No, we didn't. You were in a you were in a different group. <laughs> right. Anyway, so that leads us nicely into the meat and potatoes of this podcast, which is um a survey that's been conducted by Ipsos Mori on behalf of the PGA, commissioned and paid for by the PGA, um, into the potential size or the size of the golf playing population in the UK. It's just been published. Um it's the survey's called Golf for All. Um, they've created like a little microsite for it, which is very sort of accessible, lots of graphs and charts and things. Um, and the report is free and available for anyone to download, to take a look at, um, at the study that they've conducted. Um, it's pretty interesting stuff. It's kind of a um, a bit of a sideways look at what defines a golfer, um, the sort of different touch points that different types of people might have with the game outside of what we understand to be a golfer um, playing on a full-length 18-hole golf course. And there's some good stuff in there, isn't there, Steve? Yeah, so there were a number of um, findings in this report. Uh, The key one, the one that got a lot of attention when this report was released, I think it was last Friday, was that it said that 40% of all adults in the UK and Ireland engaged with golf in some capacity. That equates to a community of 22.4 million. It just seemed extremely large. Um, 16.3 million, it said, were playing any form of golf from adventure golf to pitch and putt, while 4.9 million played golf on course. So they were the headline figures, and obviously there was um, uh, an exhortation from the various people that produced it to go deeper, to click on the website. And that's that's what we're going to do here. We're going to go deeper into it because I think there are a lot of really interesting numbers in this report that uh, are interesting not just for off-course golf but for golfers themselves and for cl- and for golf clubs because I think some of these numbers actually ask some questions um so of the, let's start with some of the um let's start with some of the off-course golf um clearly the most popular of those was adventure golf the the report said that 12.6 million people engaged with adventure golf so i don't know whether that's going to putt stars for example somewhere like that going to the new golf it facility where the rna uh, in glasgow where they've got three adventure courses or whether that's just you know going to anywhere where there's 
a pitch and putt, incredible number, 12.6. 4.8 million went to a driving range, 3.9 million played pitch and putt, and 2.1 million um, played uh, simulators. So there's obviously a huge appetite for what they call this off-course golf, which is pretty varied, right, Tom, isn't it? I mean, there will be some people, I don't want to be critical at this stage, but there will be some people who will be listening to this and saying, that's not golf because it's not how the it's not how and what they equate golf to be so i suppose the the term golf itself needs to be discussed by us what is golf well i think that um so i've obviously read the report and i've looked at the microsite um there's a section on the microsite that says what makes a golfer um which it turned out is just a kind of a sort of ethereal kind of musing rather than they then don't go on to give you a definition and that to me is sort of the nub of it is um, I think the the research they've done is obviously credible um, and Ipsos is obviously a credible sort of research firm. Um, I think they, yeah, they're kind of like mass market kind of um, look at big numbers, look at the general population. Um, and it, there's obviously a lot of people with a lot of different touch points into something that involves holding a golf club or kicking a ball into a hole. Um, I guess it's to what degree do you think that, well, first of all, those people don't define themselves as golfers, according to the research. I think 2% of the um, of the big number that you quoted would regard themselves as being a golfer. And second of all, I'm not sure how to what degree they are golfers. And that, that to me is the nub of it, is to say what evidence is there to say that someone who's played uh, adventure golf or who's played crazy golf or whatever else, that, that they're on a pathway to the game um, and kind of almost regardless of what you do next, would that ever change? Are they just two separate things? I think um, just going forward with that number, one of the things that actually surprised me was the number of on-course golfers who didn't describe themselves as golfers either. I think it was something like 50, 51% of people who played on-course golf described themselves as a golfer. So what, what we say in there, that half the golfers who play actually play golf don't think they're golfers. Um, that was that was a remarkable number. Do, do you think, I mean, for many years now, like there was a, there's obviously a huge boom in cycling on the back of things like Brad, Bradley Wiggins' Tour de France success or Chris Froome's Tour de France success and Team GB in the Olympics. And cycling has been through a sort of renaissance in um, the last 20 odd years has been an increasing focus on fitness and all the rest of it. Um, and I think for a number of years, golf has sort of beaten itself around the head with kind of comparing itself to a sport like cycling. Um, and cycling have done a number of um, a number of surveys about what the total cycling population is of Britain. And again, they're sort of they're in a similar quandary about what defines a cyclist. So I own a road bike. Um, and I use my road bike quite a lot. And I even own a um, a turbo so I can do some indoor cycling. But I don't think I would consider myself a cyclist. Like if someone said, are you a cyclist? I would say, no, I own a road bike. Like to me, someone who is a cyclist, like by, you know, who is defining themselves as such is someone who is one of, a member of one of these awful sort of coffee and bike ride clubs and goes and does it with other people. And it's kind of their principal hobby. So I'm not. I wouldn't consider it to be my principal hobby, and I think that those people who have said, "Yeah, I play golf on a full-length golf course three or four times a year," but I'm not. I'm by no means a golfer. I kind of know what they mean. I played cricket twice this year. I'm not a cricketer. But I, I mean, I would argue the opposite. I mean, if you if you are taking regular rides on your bike, if you post said rides to say something like Strava, um, which a lot of people do. Um, then I think you could define yourself legitimately as a cyclist. I mean, not every not every cyclist is a semi-pro member of a club who goes and races. Either. There's millions of others who who take regular cycling um, but do it for recreation. They're still cyclists. I mean, is, is the definition there between competitive and non-competitive then? Um, I don't think, I mean, if it's not on Strava, has it even happened? It's a <laughs> oft-used cliche. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a, a definition between competitive and non-competitive. Like I do a lot of running and I think if someone said to me, are you a runner? I'd probably say, yeah, because I do do some running and I occasionally enter running races. Um, but it's, to me, it's more to do with the sort of volume and the kind of interest I have in it. Um, like when I'm not doing it, if you like. Um, so I guess that if, if 
these people who say they're not golfers, like I just think it's probably something they pick up and put down without even thinking about it. Or they might play when they're on the holiday or they might get invited to a corporate day or whatever else. Um, so that, that number doesn't, I don't think that really surprises me that people, maybe there's another bit that people don't want to be defined by being a golfer as well because of the sort of things that it's associated with. So there were there were two aspects of this report that I wanted to really uh, get into here. One of which is not a surprise, which is the social grade. I mean, I, I suppose it's a little bit of a surprise that even off golf course is still remarkably a middle class is middle class activity. The social grade ABC one of off course golfers was sixty nine percent of the total. That obviously goes up a little bit in clubs to seventy five percent ABC one. Um, golf is not a massively diverse sport whether it's off course or on course that really isn't a surprise either we 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 see that in the way that we interact with the game so the ethnic, ethnicity um according to this report of off course golf was 90% white 10% ethnic minorities um that was 95% white 5% ethnic minorities when it when it comes to on course golfers i don't think either of these things are surprise but it is is always instructive, I think, to just see how stark that split is um, between social classes and ethnicity as well when it comes to off-course and on-course golf. Um, but the, the, the thing I really thought was interesting was the gender divide and how that changes between off-course and on-course. So for off-course golf activities, the split of male-female golfers, if you want to put that in inverted commas, um, was basically 50-50 it was 47% female and 53% male. Um, And that split is much more defined when it comes to on-course golfers. It's 25% female and 75% male. Now, that latter statistic is not a huge surprise because we know from golf club membership that it's massively skewed towards men in terms of the numbers. Um, But I did think that the difference between off-course and on-course golf in terms of the gender split was... Was, was an interesting thing to talk about, at least. We, we clear, clearly, golf in its adventure golf form or driving range form or top golf form or pitch and putt form is clearly far more appealing to a female audience than perhaps it is to on course. Really? I, get, in, I mean, get into that. I just think that's a massive stretch or it's a big sort of leap from a, a big leap of logic from one thing to the other. Um, I think a lot of the the off course sort of touch points with golf and in inverted commas are activities that people do to fill the time um, that are easy, they're accessible, they're relatively cheap. Um, they might they might appear sort of alongside other things. Um, so it's like the, it's kind of temping bowling, isn't it? It's something that everyone can do. Um, it's got a very low skill barrier to it. It doesn't take too long. Um, the cost of it is not not. Um, obstructive so I think a lot of that sort of female participation on in off-course golf presumably comes from um, people doing it with their children or with their families or entire families going on for a family day out just as they would go to the cinema or temping bowling or a museum or a theme park or whatever else so it doesn't really surprise me that a there's more women doing it and b this sort of diversity is increased and the age is lower um, I think that if you surveyed people at Alton Towers, you'd find sort of similar similar demographics. I think that's the sort of legitimate comparison. Um, I think um, so. I think that that is that is really encouraging that all of those people are going to get a golf ball in their hand, or in the case of something like a golf club in their hand, or in the case of something like foot golf, they're going to be sort of adjacent to a, a, a golf facility often, or they're going to be doing something that is kind of adjacent to golf in terms of the the idea of the game um but again i just i just w- would remain to be convinced about how much that is a pathway into golf um i think some of these kind of non-golf or non um non-long form elements of the game can be but i do think they do need to involve like swinging a golf club um my own sort of starting point was at um a very bad sort of caravan park golf club um, actually not very far from Woodall Spa um, but nothing to do with Woodall Spa and I played on my own because there was nothing else to do on this caravan park holiday um, and then when I got back I'd sort of decided that golf was the thing for me and demanded that I get taken to the local muni and off I went um, 
but my starting point was someone gave me a golf club and I swung a golf club in the way that I'd seen other people do it. Um, so things like pitch and putt, um, there used to be a pitch and putt in Bath, which is closed now. It's just now a park. But I think that kind of thing is a pathway into golf because it's kind of people who are probably sporty or looking for a family day out, but they're they're on a golf course. It's, it's recognisable as a golf course, right? And you don't have to be a member. You can wear what you want. The holes are 50, 60 yards long. But you are sort of, you are experiencing the green shoots of the game um, rather than something that is kind of a, a totally sort of different form of the game. Where I think that line is interesting, though, is because golf has spent quite a lot of time and presumably resource over the, over the past few years trying to convince families to go as a collective to go to a golf facility haven't they? i mean that's what golf it is about for example yeah. the new thing in glasgow to get the whole family there um that you could argue that that royal norwich obviously at a completely different uh price point but you could argue that that's what they were trying to do wasn't it in terms of academy course family trails bike rides and 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 so you know golf has spent i think certainly you know kind of like walk golf if you don't mind me using that term i don't mean it's a term of disrespect but as that that side of the industry spent a, quite a lot of time trying to get the entire family to come and play golf and yet there's still this you, i think what you're saying there is it's kind of like a fool's errand i don't think it's a fool's errand i just think that like the, the crucial thing is how do you if it is possible to get people from one thing to another, so if it is possible to convert a family of non-golfers who've decided to go to a put stars or whatever else, um, how do you get their men to engage with the game properly? And that is a big challenge. Um, I keep talking about my own experiences, but we went on a summer holiday to Northumberland this year and we ended up at um, stopping at Morpeth Golf Club on the way back to kind of break the journey up. Um and it had a, an adventure golf course and a driving range and then a par three course. And I guess that kind of facility where the, like they're all on top of each other, um, it would pique the interest perhaps of a family who have been onto the um, adventure golf course to then go and try the driving range and then eventually try the par three. I kind of get that. Um, I'm just not sure there's loads of those types of facilities out there um, that so directly link one thing from the other. It's a long way from a, adventure golf course inside a shopping centre to the first tee at Woburn. It's certainly a long pathway, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was another figure that I really wanted to discuss. There's a few more to go through yet, but but this one was quite interesting from the on-course statistics. So the the, the Ipsos stats um, gave ages and percentages of ages for both off-course and on-course golf. And off-course is... As, as you would expect, it's massively youth-oriented. Um, only 7% of 65-plus-year-olds um, were engaged in off-course golf. That's not a massive surprise, I think. Um, that figure obviously flips, as you would expect, for on-course golf. We know this because we know, looking around our own golf course, that the average age of golf club membership is... It's get it's 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 get it's retired people. There's no other way of getting around it. Seventeen uh, percent of um, on-course golfers were aged sixty-five or over. Fourteen percent of on-course golfers um, were aged fifty-five to sixty-four. But this might surprise you. The biggest percentage for on-course age of weighing in at twenty-four percent, so just about a quarter of the total that they surveyed, was people aged thirty-five to forty-four. Um, now, uh, you could ask the question, well, why aren't these people in golf club membership? I think that's quite an easy one to answer because it's been, it's been well pushed, which is family time, perhaps income, time, essentially, um, being, being the interesting factor. But nearly a quarter of all on-course golfers are aged between 35 and 44. I do think that begs the question of, um, a, a, it shows why iGolf has been such a success in England. But B, I think it also begs the question of whether golf clubs are doing enough to make visitors more welcome, given that a significant chunk of on-course age is within an age group that clearly aren't joining golf clubs. Yeah, I think so. I think you were kind of in the in the uh, preamble to this show. What do people say? Off mic, whatever. Mm. 
you were kind of expressing a bit of surprise at that number. Um, I'm not sure that it is a surprise. I mean, even in our office, um, where we've got, we're obviously a golf business where most people play pretty frequently. Um, we've got at least three people who are, were certainly considering themselves golfers and certainly play on full length golf courses who aren't members of a golf club in a traditional way. Um, and they would fit into that age demographic. Um, so I think in the general population, I would think there'd be a, a huge number of people who are just paying and playing. If I think to, about the people I talk to on the sideline at kids cricket or kids football, there's a lot of people who play golf regularly in golf societies who go on golf trips, who go and attend golf um, events, but they're not members of clubs. Um, for Just for the reasons that we all know, cost, um, they're at a stage of life when family takes precedent, but they still want to play. Um and that we've talked about this before almost endlessly, but that is that is the opportunity surely for golf facilities. Like I've just been at the Grove, which is a to- it's a different thing. It's a corporate model, I guess, but they have no members, and the the massive benefit they've got is that there's then not this struggle between how do we keep the members happy and how do we keep the non-members happy. And I think that's such a such an opportunity for a golf facility to provide a proper golf experience um, with proper services, proper facilities, proper golf course but no members because it is difficult um it's it's almost impossible i think to walk that line because you'll always get members who will argue that they should have the first dibs of the best times as they should if it's a members facility they're the ones paying the subscriptions you know it is it's it's not a flight of fancy to say that they should be the they should have the dominant say but it does make it does make visiting a golf club, and I say this as someone who visits a lot of golf clubs and pays money as a green fee to go and visit a lot of golf clubs, it does make it quite difficult if you're not a member of a golf club but you'd like to play that facility because you've got to be pretty flexible in terms of time and and, and you've got to be pretty flexible in how you book your golf as well. Um now you might say I'm making a prop, I'm making an issue out of nothing there. You know, just join a golf club if you want to be able to pay and pick and play whenever you like. But there must be a lot of golf clubs that are leaving quite a lot of cash out there on the table because they're forced into a restrictive policy towards visitors to keep their members happy. And yet, as we see, that 35 to 44 group of golfers is actually the largest number of on-course golfers by percentage. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, like, I'm saying it's not a surprise. It's not a surprise once you've heard the number and then you think about it. It is a surprise, isn't it? It's a lot of people who are obviously sort of engaging with the game properly who are not um, are not invested enough to join a club, which I guess is sort of a threat and an opportunity at the same time, isn't it? Well, I, I think there is... Um, I'm not... Uh, I've got to be careful not to generalise here, and I've got to... Ca- but, so I'm just going to say that this is my perspective rather than actual fact. It's just how I feel it goes. Um, but, but I think there is generally, I, th- I think golf clubs are pretty laissez-faire about this because there is a belief, I think, that they'll come to us eventually. You know, either they'll find the time their kids have grown up or they'll get more income. And then they'll just naturally join a golf club. I think you, you were talking about you were talking last week, Tom, about you know how people stop playing other sports and then move into golf. And I've definitely always felt that there's this kind of like idea in golf that well they'll just come and join golf anyway because that's what people do. That's what they've always done when they've stopped playing football. We need something competitive to do, so we'll go and play golf. So my general feeling is that there's this kind of just belief that, well, they'll come to us anyway in the end. And I sort of think, especially these days, with all the activities that uh, that, that are around for people to fill their leisure time with, that that's quite dangerous. Like Paddle, for example. Yeah, there's a, there's a Paddle place opening near us, isn't there? There's a Paddle place opening in Boston Spa. And there's like a huge, there's like a huge sign gone up Um and um, paddle tennis is absolute pickleball, they call it in the US, don't they? Yeah. It seems to be the surging thing now, doesn't it? And I just think it's, I just think it's dangerous for, 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 for an industry to say to that generation. I just think it's interest. It's dangerous for, for um, the industry to say 
well, you'll come to us at some point. And the industry is saying this, right? Because the industry largely refuses to engage with iGolfers in terms of like allowing them into comp- into open competitions, allowing them into club competitions. You know, iGolf is the iGolfer, who, who I'm prepared to say is probably this age group, right? Um, the iGolfer is not being engaged with in the way they should be by golf clubs. Yeah, I mean, I think you say that the, the industry's always sort of relied on the fact that people will come to it eventually. And it, that is kind of what happens. And I guess what I've all like, what, what marketing people do is they over trade to younger people, right? Because if you get a young person, you've got them for life. So that's kind of like the marketing trick is that you get people um, when they're 16, 17, and you've got them for the next 40, 50 years as a customer. And I think in most things, that's obviously been demonstrated to be correct. I think it is slightly different with golf because because of all of the things we talked about a lot, it's expensive, it takes a long time, um, weekend access is difficult because that's when it is busy, blah, 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 blah. Um, so I'm, what I'm always amazed is that we don't overtrade to people who already play golf, right? So the, the people who are in golf clubs probably playing because their parents did, not in my case. Um, a lot of the ladies who play golf play because their husbands do. Um and a lot of the men who play golf have, have, have played more golf or perhaps have joined a golf club later on in life because their other sport is something they no longer do. And it, golf is a more attractive option than a lot of other sports that you can play to later in life, like football because you don't get injured, like rugby because you don't get injured. Cricket, you can go and be a member of a cricket team and not do anything by turning up on a Saturday. And golf, I think, is a fantastic leisure sport for older people because of the health benefits, because of the social benefits, because you're guaranteed to participate for the whole three or four hours. Um, and it, it amazes me that as the, an industry, we don't go and overtrade to people who are currently in rugby clubs, in cricket clubs, in the WI, doing things that middle-aged or old people do. And surely that's the opportunity to grow, is just grow it more in terms of the people already playing it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's another interesting uh, bit of statistics um, that, that lead on from that, which was having fun, Tom. So they asked um, how important having fun was. And for infrequent golfers, it was 68% of respondents said it was. And for regular golfers, going with what we said last week, 49% said the same thing. So <laughs> that, that, that because in all golfers, it was 67%. But I mean, I've, I wrote about this um, with competitions earlier in the week because I've said, like, why why does every af- competition have to be from the back tee? Why do we have to slog ourselves in this way? And um, one, of the, one of the reasons I said was because I believed that um, there is a section of golfer that just, just wants to be miserable about it and wants to take it on at its toughest point and wants it to be a huge challenge and wants it to be difficult. And that, that split was an interesting one for me, that infrequent golfers having fun was far more important, nearly 20% more important than it was for people who were regular and probably actually engaged with golf clubs. Yeah. I think um, if you all, all the surveys of uh, golfers like that say what's most important to you about your golf club, People always say the quality of the greens, which you like. I mean, it's just really like rather than the quality of the friendships you make there or like the bants that you have. No, no, got our pure putting surfaces, right? Got you. I mean, I'm laughing. I mean, I would say the same thing probably. Um, anyway, it's interesting stuff, isn't it? And um, it like not to um, be too curmudgeonly about it. It's like the top line numbers in terms of people who are doing golf in some way, shape, or form is like absolutely amazing, isn't it? And if, if, as an industry, we can find a way to get people from a put stars um, onto a proper golf course, then there's an awful lot of people to tap into, clearly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what the figures in the report show quite clearly is the opportunity um, that, that, that is around that, you know, whether, whether you class adventure golf people who play as venture golf uh, as golfers or not is almost irrelevant actually you know the reality is that they're engaging in the sport in some way and there is the opportunity for them to move on that ladder now whether they take it or not is obviously up to them and there are various initiatives that are being brought in and have been brought in in order to help people along the way but you know going just going back to the the 47% female, 53% female in terms of off course golfers there is an opportunity there um, to get 
more women and girls involved in on-course golf because they're there at some point in the ladder for whatever reason that they're there. They're there. And I think the challenge for the sport going forward and the opportunity for the sport is to get more women and girls engaged in the on-course side, is to get more younger people engaged in the on-course side as well and make that pathway easier for people from off-course to on-golf. And as you say, Tom, there'll be some people who never take it for the same reason that I don't go bowling every week. I like it. The bowling analogy was a really good one, though, because I, I think, you know, I like bowling, um, but I don't go and do it every week. No, you know, it's, it's like paintballing or laser quest or whatever, isn't it? And, 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 there, and there are people, I think, that um, that is absolutely the case for. But I think, you know, once you, once you start talking about top golf, and I think once you start talking about pitch and putts and driving ranges, then we're getting into a more engaged crowd, I think. Um, 100%. Yeah, 100%. And just just some really interesting figures. I'd urge readers and listeners to, to to go and have a look at them. Let us know what you think about them. I'm going to be writing lots about this over the coming um, weeks and months. Um, it's a huge piece of research. Um, so kudos to the PGA for because it's never been done before, has it? Anything like this? Not not of this depth, anyway. Well, I was actually going to say the European Tour. Um, I think in collaboration with the RNA did a similar survey um, a few years ago. And it was about, I think it was more about a kind of sponsorship opportunity, but they were, they were, they were counting people who played golf on Xbox or PlayStation as people who've engaged with golf, which is, I mean, that is a stretch in it. And, and there is a type of golfer here in the Ipsos uh, research that would kind of meet that where it talks about media interest only, which is those who basically watch it on TV and don't play. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean, watching on TV is closer to it than I think than playing on a PlayStation. Because I mean, if you're counting that as golf, then I'm. You should count me as like a car thief. <laughs> but but in all seriousness, take a look at the figures if you could, listeners. Um, there's some really interesting stuff in there, particularly around off course age and on course age, and um, and 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 what it does also show is that we really do have to get to grips with equality, diversity, and inclusion in this sport, um, because it is quite frankly shocking that 95 percent of on course golfers are white. Yeah, yeah, it feels like um, the baton is about to be picked up though in terms of. Um, growth in the game. Um, the England Golf have got a big new initiative to get um, um, the Respect campaign and they've yeah. launched a, a TV campaign to support that. And then we've also got um, the Golf Foundation have got on a mission to get golf onto school curriculums, which is kind of would be a, an absolute game changer, really. Yeah, officially launched on Thursday. It was officially launched on Thursday at Wentworth. Um, unleash your drive you can read all about that and you can read a very in-depth interview with nick doty who i asked about because it's nick doty's brainchild in in association with the golf foundation to try and get school uh, golf into all thirty-two thousand schools in the uk in gb and i um so you can read all about his motivation for that on our website as well i had lunch near him on wednesday in the media center were you within touching distance very thin he's very tall as well yeah but keeps himself in shape he had a very healthy lunch and then i saw him sort of checking the ingredients on like a um, flapjack on the way out which he did snuffle into his pocket so we'll forgive him that this is this is what i'm currently doing this like a calorie check a saturated fat check um so bad news bloke to bad news folks grow the game is back on the agenda prepared to hear a lot about it and all these new golfers steve they've got dreadful etiquette haven't they that's the problem with them they just they don't they're not respectful of the game's traditions nice link um good wasn't it and you were you've been sort of getting out your is it horace hutchinson it is my favorite book in golf getting out your horace hutchinson book and uh writing things about people driving through the group in front I, th- I, th- I thought it was about time we revisited Horace because we'd uh, we we'd last we last spoke of Horace Hutchinson, who in his day was an incredibly famous golfer. He twice won the amateur championship, uh, but he was also a celebrated writer as well. He wrote a number of books, and one of which was um, the Badminton Library. The Badminton Library was like an almanac, and it was done for all kinds of sports, and golf happened to be one of them. Um, and the last time we encountered dear old Horace. 
um, he was talking about the crime of um, not sorting out your divots. And he was very angry about people who did not sort out their divots. And he is similarly angry about people who hit into the group in front. Uh, it's a quite a funny piece. Not a lot's changed, has it? Because, I mean, it is pretty off. Anyway, so we thought we'd finish up with some uh, some tales of dreadful etiquette, didn't we? We did, yeah. We want to ask. We want to ask. Um, we want to ask you out there as well. What is the worst etiquette breach you've ever seen on the golf course? So I've got uh, I've got a couple of stories here. Um, they're both pretty long, so let's just say we're going to do these two stories. I think they're both pretty good. Uh, I'll start with the, the the first one is one I was actually there for, and I guess it, I'm not necessarily saying this was the worst piece of breach of golf club etiquette I've ever seen but a bit like a bad tackle at football it was more the sort of like the impact of the bad tackle that kind of like led to the red card if you see what I mean the, you know, the same sort of tackle might have happened a thousand times before and there'd have been no repercussions but because the guy broke his leg it was definitely a straight red and that was a bit similar to this breach of etiquette so I got invited to go and play in the uh oh pro-am in fact so there we go <laughs> another pro-am I got invited to play in the uh, Messina Aegean Pro-Am, right, which is run by the European uh, Professional Golf Association. I can't remember what quite what the ac- acronym is. Anyway, it's at Costa Navarino in Greece every year, which is an amazing venue um, in southern Greece. It's like one of the best uh, golf facilities going. It's got about five golf courses, four amazing hotels. Um, and I sort of accepted it because it was like after the kids' holidays, thought I'll go and do that. It's like a nice trip to do. Glad I did. Um, sort of quite a bizarre trip. Like Brian McFadden was on that trip, um, and was the he was the post he was my uh, transfer companion from the airport. So it kind of got off to a pretty surreal start. Um, he's now in a new band that's called something like Boys Life. It's like an amalgamation of him out of Boyzone and someone out of Westlife. I can't remember what the bloke's called. Anyway, they were the post uh, event kind of um, show on the Saturday night and. Honestly, I've never seen anything as, as so much of a car crash. That is by the by. So I spent three amazing days playing with a lovely uh, Swedish female pro called Veronica. Me and her shared a buggy, spent about 20 hours in her company. Can't say it was a chore. She's a fantastic golfer. Uh, so we were buggy companions for two days. And we were playing with a, an absolutely brilliant Czech business journalist who was a lovely guy. And then a, dude, a French dude who is the anchor on CNN. You might have met him. Mm. Golf. So yeah, he's basically like a French Nick Doherty, right? So oh, okay. on the when golf's on the telly in France, he's the anchor. And he is the most French Frenchman of all time. Like miserable as sin. I don't think he was smoking a gitan, but he should have been smoking a gitan. He's like short of having some onions around his neck. He was like a, just a, an absolute kind of parody of a Frenchman. Um kind of spoke when spoken to in like sort of one word answers. Uh, I don't think he heard him say boff, but he definitely wanted to say boff a lot, I think. Uh, and he was also kind of like a sort of professional like work tripper, right? So he sort of like knows the drill. He's like not wasting any time at dinner. He's in and he's out. Uh, and he's playing the golf tournament. And the golf tournament's really slow. So it's four balls. There's lots of people there who don't really play. There's loads of groups. It's buggies. It's like five-hour round stuff, right? Um, and he's actually there to make a film. So he's not there to sort of report on the venue. He's making like a corporate film. Um, and we are um, playing behind a, a group who are help, ho- holding us up on a dog leg left to right, right to left dog leg rather. Uh, and me and Veronica have driven it um, further than um, this French chap uh, and his Czechoslovakian buggy compartner. Uh, so we're sort of 60 yards up the fairway. And we can see that the group in front are just leaving the green um, and they're having to go back, get back in their buggies and then sort of exit the green to the right to go to the next tee. Uh, our French friend, who was a lovely guy, by the way, uh, it just it was just a very unfortunate incident. He's got hybrid into this green from, let's say, 200 yards. Um, and he's been waiting for like five minutes or must have felt like ages. So he doesn't really give them a chance to sort of get in their buggies and drive off. So they're kind of like doing the bit where you like putting your club in your bag and then sort of getting into your car to go. Uh, and he's hit his shot. Obviously, it's from 200 yards and he's got a hybrid. So obviously, he misses it short and right, which is exactly where the buggies are parked. So there's this massive clunk because it kind of one bounces into the back of this buggy. 
So me and Veronica are saying, "Oh, you've uh, you've hit the uh, you've hit the guys in front," and he just like gives the most Gallic shrug of all Gallic shrugs, gets back in his buggy, folds his arms, and just sits there like a sort of like sour faced toad, doesn't say a word. So we're thinking, Jesus, like you have to say something. Like you're in a buggy, like it'd been the easiest thing in the world to zoom up and say, "I'm really sorry." Just we desolate, presumably, um, and he didn't. Anyway, so then we're sort of playing around. I was like saying to Veronica that like, this is going to be really bad because we're going to catch them up all of the time and it's going to be just a terrible encounter. Anyway, so we're then sort of inching our buggy round to make sure we'd never, ever encounter them <laughs> anywhere at all before the end of the round. I think this happened on like the 9th. Anyway, then we play the 16th. By this stage, we've sort of forgotten a little bit about this incident and we kind of go over the brow of a hill onto then like a big downhill to the 17th tee so we're kind of exposed they're on the 17th tee still um and uh they can see us we've got sort of no choice but to drive up and park our buggies before they hit their shots the next thing that happened is that uh checkers vacuum man has found a towel that the group in front have dropped so i'm thinking right this is amazing so i was saying to the french dude right this is your chance like get the towel go over, so I think you've dropped your towel, say sorry, nothing, shakes, not doing it, not doing it, not doing it. Uh, so anyway, so then the guy who owns the towel comes over, snatches the towel off the checkers vacuum dude, goes back to the tee, and they carry on, just like glared at us, like not a word passes, okay? So we get in, chatting away, uh, PR comes over, says, uh, what's happened, what's been happening? So we sort of tell this story, it's all sort of chuckles, 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 chuckles. Anyway, that night at dinner, um, my mate who is on this trip comes over and he goes, did you hit the group in front with a shot today? I was like, no, 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 it was uh, it was Jacques, whatever he's called. And uh, and Rich goes, uh, he goes, it was the owner. He goes, <laughs> he goes, I'm sat with him at dinner and you've never seen anyone angrier. He's going, if I find out who did it, they're never going to visit this resort again. So this guy's like some like Russian oligarch who owns like most of Southern Greece, right? And he's like, this is this is the guy that he's whacked into, and he's there on a freebie, four days of glorious golf as you know as his guest. It was in, it was incredible. So I reckon that in terms of like repercussions, were the work was the worst piece of etiquette I've seen. That's an, that's unbelievable. So yeah, you should always apologise. What a story! You've got an even better one though, haven't you? Well, it's not really our story. Is it? Yeah, but it's the stuff of NCG Towers legend. So we, we we've got to... it is the stuff and, of and NCG Towers legend. It is it is it is a story that is now recalled and regaled at every association of golf writers dinner as well. So it's, it's hard to know how much detail to do this in because it's all there's kind of a lot. It's multi layered, isn't it? And it's also what is the, what what is the entry point to this story? Do we sort of tell? the story of the story being recounted or do we tell the story and then describe how it's recounted? I think we'll start with the recounting of it, shall we? Yeah, it's probably the best way. So every, so Steve and I have got a, a colleague called Dan Murphy, who is the longtime editor of National Club Golfer and now runs our sister business, 18 Players Agency. Uh, he was the equipment editor for National Club Golfer for many years uh, he's the absolute cornerstone of our business. He's very well respected in the golf industry. Still chairs our top 100 panel, uh, Mr. Golf. Um, and every year we all attend the Association of Golf Riders dinner at the Open. And every year, Rick Shields off of YouTube comes over and tells this story to our table. And in many ways, it's sort of the worst 20 minutes of the year because Dan absolutely loves it because... Rick Shields, with his 2.0 many YouTube subscribers, comes over, slaps Dan on the back and says, oh, I'll never forget this story. And then he sits down at our table and tells the story a lot better than I'm about to tell it. Um, it is a good story. It is well told by Rick. Um, so the story goes that the two of them are on a press trip uh, to North Berwick uh, in East Lothian, um, on Scotland's Gulf Coast, amazing golf course, like amazing golf course. Probably a lot of people's favourite, sort of proper combination of sort of quirky and classic links. It's like the absolute business, isn't it? It's like St Andrews, begins and ends in the town, proper, proper, proper place to play golf. 
Um, and without wishing to date the story, they're on a press trip for the launch of the new Nike golf ball, um, which you might remember from such famous incidents as Tiger Woods chipping on 16. So it's a kind of storied golf ball already, right? Um, if this is just sort of a another one in the sort of pantheon of things that happened to that. What, what, what was it called, that golf ball? Was it the resin? The I resin. Think it, I think it was the resin. You're absolutely right. Very spinny, if you remember. I used to have a Nike driver in that resin golf ball, and they just like climbed and climbed and climbed and climbed. Anyway, so it's uh, it's a pretty cool occasion, isn't it? A Nike launch for Nike golf ball at North Berwick. The kind of great and the good of the golf industry are gathered. Dan's a kind of old hand at these events. He'd probably be one of the better golfers on the trip. Um, and he's in the last group out. And anyone who's played North Berwick, there's a lot of amazing holes there. There's things like Perfection, the par three towards the end with the classic sort of red and green. The first, an amazing sort of par four. And one and 18 have got a split fairway. And the 18th is very similar to the 18th in Andrews in that it's a sort of drivable par four that finishes in front of the clubhouse. Uh, you can watch this on on Rick's YouTube channel. He's got he's done a recent video um, at North Berwick where he references this story. And he's also got a video from kind of right at the start of his channel, I think, from this press launch where you can kind of see this incident happen. So Dan's playing last group, sun setting. Uh, Dan's wielding, presumably, his Nike driver uh, and his new Nike resin golf ball. And the rest of the sort of assembled media are outside the clubhouse waiting for them to finish. Uh, and he hits this drive. And as the story goes, it kind of starts left and kind of like bounces short left to the green and then takes a few hops and then starts to run up the green. And in Rick's video, you can kind of hear... Uh, the people getting more and more excited and it goes in the first ever hole in one in North Berwick's however many hundreds of years history and it's by our very own Dan Murphy with the new Nike resin golf ball in front of the world's biggest YouTuber it's kind of like I know it's not quite Tiger at the Masters but you know it's kind of up there isn't it anyway so obviously Dan can't see that. I can obviously see people going bonkers. They walk up to the green. I presume it was becoming increasingly obvious that the ball had gone in. Uh, and then the worst piece of golfing etiquette occurred. So I don't know how many holes in one of you have had or how many you've witnessed, but I would have thought the one thing that you do if you are playing with someone who's had a hole in one is that when you reach the green, you stand aside you don't go anywhere near the flag. You don't touch the flag. And what you certainly don't do is pick the ball out of the hole. You, you let the person walk up, have their moment in the sun, acknowledge the invisible gallery and give them a pat on the back. But oh no, one of Dan's playing group walked up, picked the ball out of the hole and then tossed it to him in the most offhand fashion you've ever seen. I just, I think, can you think of anything worse? I, I'm really struggling. No time for pictures. No time for. I mean, there's a, there's a routine that needs to be gone through when you just get a hole in one. Never never mind a hole in one on a par four, which is also an albatross. I mean, it's just massively rare, isn't it? Just never so a piece of absolute golfing immortality at North Berwick, and then you don't even get the chance to kind of like acknowledge your peers and the grandstand. Don't even get the money shot at the end. I, t- I text Rick when I saw his vlog about it the day, and he said it still makes me sick in my mouth to this day. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I reckon uh, those those are my two offerings. Anyway, it'd be good to hear some others, wouldn't it? Because I can't get anywhere near that. I mean, I've seen also. I mean, I've seen the I've seen the guy chuck his club into a tree and not be able to retrieve it because he was so angry. <sighs> We were just like we were just chucking, we were chucking, he's chucking further clubs up there to try to try and get this club down. I've seen I've seen that happen. I've seen some incidents that could best be described as nefarious. I'm not sure whether I can talk about them on here, but I've never seen a piece of golfing it. I mean, it just feels like to rob someone of that moment. No, I know, I know, yeah. Um, so there you go. So I'm. Dead keen that people uh, write to us or tweet us, I'm sure they will, with their own anecdotes. Um, right. I enjoyed telling those stories. I hope they weren't too boring for anyone else. Absolutely fantastic stuff. Um, I've got to go now, so I've got kids' football. 
So, so yeah. What? So you're ditching me. You're ditching me now on the podcast. You've ditched me at golf tomorrow. I mean, what? what where? What, how many more rejections Steve, can one man take? You, you've literally just had an hour and seven minutes and three seconds of absolute gold. <laughs> it's as much as I've had of you in the last month, actually. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's good to be back week in, week out. It most certainly is. Yeah. Uh, right. Can you please make sure you give us a subscribe on Apple or on Android? I was looking, quite a lot of our listeners are non-subscribers, and subscribing to the show really helps because you get a notification every time it's a new show. You won't miss out, and our numbers will be better. And it very much pleases our sponsors, TaylorMade, so please do it. It does. Right. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Cheers, Tom, as always. Bye.